Hello, welcome to Enlightened Empath, your community for the spiritually awakened. We are excited to bring to you a very informative and optimistic guest who reached out and emailed me a couple of months ago after we had Dr. Northrup on our show. And our guest said, really enjoyed the interview with Dr. Northrup about energy vampires, but I wanted to point you in the direction of some positive research and insight that has been going on regarding a borderline personality diagnosis and how it's actually the thinking is changing, that this is you know, not an uncurable thing, that there's a lot of hope. And I just... I just loved her email. I loved the informative websites and podcasts and links she sent me. And I just said, hey, would you like to be on our show and talk to people about this positive spin on this kind of negative term of energy vampires? And she said yes. So, Denise, would you like to introduce our guest? I'd love to. Uh, Amy Rowe Chadwick, LCSW, is a psychotherapist in private practice practice in New York City. She provides psychotherapy to adults and teens dealing with a variety of issues and is particularly skilled in the treatment of depression, anxiety, eating and body image problems, trauma, and childhood abuse. Amy teaches professional development workshops to help therapists further develop their skills, and she's an adjunct professor at Pacific College of Oriental Medicine in New York City. Information on her therapy practice, upcoming workshops, and therapy groups can be found on her website, amyroe.com, and it's A-M-I-E-R-O-E.com. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so grateful to be here. Well, we are too, and we have a lot of, a lot of different places we would like to take you in this hour, mm-hmm. but I'd like to start just with the email when you and I first were introduced to each other. You know... Borderline personality disorder is such a difficult thing, I am sure, to have as a person. I can only speak from being around BPDs in my own life, and and being around a BPD is kind of terrifying sometimes because you just never know who you're going to get. It's like a walking on eggshells. And so I've read a lot of books on BPD. I And I guess they all were published in the 90s because I didn't know all this new research that shows hope. Could you just tell our listeners kind of more from a clinical perspective, what is a borderline personality disorder? What does that actually mean? Sure. So it is in the classification of personality disorders. And how something like a personality disorder is seen as different from a disorder like depression or even bipolar disorder or some of these other affect disorders is that a personality disorder refers to when a person has a fixed way of relating to the world and experiencing themselves and their relationships that really interferes and gets in the way of their ability to lead um, a full life. So it might interfere with Um, their ability to exercise judgment, their ability to have employment, certainly with their relationships with other people. So we're looking at like a pattern of how a person is in the world that's relatively fixed versus maybe if somebody's depressed, they might really operate differently in the world and see and feel and experience things differently, but it's usually for a certain period of time 
and then they might return back to their baseline or their way that they usually are in the world. Um, and borderline is one of the most common personality disorders. And here, like in the mental health world, we see that about 10% of people who are in outpatient treatment meet the criteria for borderline personality disorder. And about 20%, yeah, it's a lot. And I, I do find too, just anecdotally, that we as therapists are not always very well educated on it for the, the frequency with which it happens and that we see it. Um, mm -hmm. But when we're talking about somebody who has borderline, um, there's a lot of difficulties with impulse. There's a lot of difficulties with um, emotional regulation. And that really gets in the way of how a person experiences themselves and how they experience other people and how they interpret what's going on in their lives. So just as you said, Samantha, that when you're around somebody, it's like kind of unpredictable and walking on eggshells. Um, when people are struggling with this, their experience of the world is really kind of a mirror of that. It's very up and down. Um, and their perception and their cognition can change really rapidly too. So it's, I've heard it referred to before, and I think this is a helpful phrase. It's being, in, it's being consistently inconsistent, just having a lot of variation in how people um, behave and experience what's going on. You know, it's interesting that you talk about how they return to baseline. Growing up with a with a person that I believe has borderline personality disorder, it's often made me think that I kind of understand how people in the Middle Ages believe so strongly in possession. Mm -hmm. Because the, the BPD person in my life can be like the most wonderful person in the world and fun and yeah. charming and all sorts of great stuff. But when she gets in those hypermanic states, mm -hmm. it's like a different person. Yeah. And then when she's out of that anger, she's cognizant of what she did and what she said. Yeah. And but it's often, almost like someone else did it. You know what I mean? Like, like she'll yell at us and then go, did I really yell that badly? Yes. Like in, it's hard to see that switch back and forth. But what you're saying is that's a baseline and they kind of go in and out of that am I hearing that correctly yeah that it's it's kind of consistent that a person is going to go in and out of those kinds of ways of being something happens and, and maybe it could even just be an internal thought that the person has the person might begin to think oh I'm terrible or I'm a bad mother or I'm a bad partner um, I'm no good at my job and that mm -hmm. might cascade internally like in their own world into a moment where they're feeling really out of control so to the outside observer it's like what the hell is going on over here we were just having a conversation and now this person is yelling at me and this person thinks that i'm you know they're saying that they feel attacked by me or threatened by me when that really doesn't match the person that they're in conversations with uh, conversation with experience of what's going on at all so it's so confusing and so disorienting. Um, and what you said about the person with BPD in your life being very sweet and, and loving is I do find, um, just in my experience of working with these folks and getting to know them, that they're often really creative, um, very, very smart, and very likable people. Um, mm -hmm. And they, they do feel so oftentimes very, very guilty 
because people might explain it or experience it as coming out of the fog. You know, I just went into this rage episode and I yelled at this person who's the person that I love more than anything in the world, you know, whether it's a partner or it's a child or it's a parent. And, oh my God, did I really just do that? It's kind of like an out-of-body thing. And how do I come back from that? How do I, how do I repair the damage that's been done? Wow. It's just, you know, when I first got your email, it just, it just really sat with me because I don't, it's not like, I'm not saying I go into victim mode, like, oh, poor me, I have to deal with the BPD. Mm-hmm. But it's very hard for me to have compassion for that person and, and to say like, oh, it must be really hard to be angry all the time. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. But your email made me have compassion for the person dealing with BPD. I'm so, so could you talk about what does the new research show for recovery? Or sure. is recovery even the right word? You know, I think, when, especially when we talk about BPD and some of um, what professionals are advocating and how we diagnose it and think about it, is not like an on or off switch, but maybe thinking about it more along a continuum. Because the thing about BPD, too, is that in order to meet the the criteria for the diagnosis, there are nine criteria, nine symptoms, we we could say, that a person um, might possess. And in order to meet the criteria to say, I'm diagnosing you with this, you need to meet five of those. If you think about that, and you know, this is kind of taking me back to high school math, there are over 200 possible combinations that a person could, could have and could manifest with um, that would say that they meet the criteria for BPD. And then people could have it to varying degrees of severity. So if you are a person who's really struggling with anger and you're having these rageful episodes, there are people who are having that in such a way that it's wreaking havoc in their lives, they're not able to hold down a job, And then there are people for whom that's just manifesting in their very closest relationships, um, typically with like partnerships or with their family members or really dear friends. So there's a wide range of the degree to which people are affected by this, which is not to mention that if you had like three or four of these different symptoms, you technically don't meet the criteria for BPD, but your life still might really be affected by it. So When I think about recovery, I think about diminishing the symptoms and the severity of the symptoms and how much they they show up in your life and how much they kind of rule the day when it comes to to the course of your life um, and getting in the way of your goals. So I I do use the word recovery. um, And I know that there are a lot of people who take a lot of pride in, well, I no longer meet the criteria for the diagnosis. Um, So those, those are phrases that that I do use and that I think people find helpful. And what the research has shown, the more that we look at this, is that the picture is actually pretty optimistic. Even without treatment, um, this is a diagnosis that we see the symptoms lessen in severity over time and we see a majority of people no longer meeting the criteria for the diagnosis, even if they don't go into treatment. Um, which is so different. When, when I was in grad school, um, in my advanced practice class, I remember so clearly my professor saying, when he was talking about BPD, avoid these people. Don't take these clients on. They're a headache. 
they never get better. And in my experience of like being supervised and learning the ropes of therapy, that was a sentiment that was repeated over and over again by supervisors that I had. You know, I would describe a case to somebody and they'd say, oh, sounds like a borderline. You know, what a, what a headache, what a pain in the neck. But the more that we look at this and we follow people over time and the more that we try to develop treatment protocols specifically for these people, the more we find that they're doing pretty well and that they can expect to get better over time. And it's just going to be even better if they're getting themselves into treatment and really dedicating themselves to it. One thing I'd like to, I love, love, love your description of this. And I'm also, I'm, and I also have someone who had these tendencies very, in my family of origin. Mm-hmm. And there was no lukewarm. You either got hot, warm, loving, kind, or you got kind of mean as a snake. And there was no in between. Mm-hmm. And as an empath, trying to navigate that, and I think for a lot of our listeners, one of the things Samantha and I have really talked about so much in so many shows is the importance of setting boundaries and having consistent boundaries with people who may um, have these tendencies. So yes. what would be your take on how as, as sensitive people, as empaths, and if we do have someone with BPD in our lives, what, because that's a really tricky thing for oh, especially yeah. if, it's, if it's a parent or a child or a sibling, to keep to the love part gets in the way a lot. I guess I'm just going to cut to the chase with that. Absolutely. I think, you know, and I'll step for a moment into my own personal journey. Um, For me, it became so important to relearn and to question some fundamental assumptions that I had about what love was, which is kind of a huge, it was a little bit like earth shattering. It's a rabbit hole. It's a huge rabbit hole. (laughs) I, I had, I had learned all these really distorted messages growing up about what love was, that it had this self-sacrificial component to it, which, you know, I think there's, there's space for, but we don't give up ourselves and we don't not take care of ourselves in the name of love. And that's a common distortion that I see, like just working with my clients. So I had to relearn that we can love people and have positive regard for them, but still that's not at odds with holding people accountable for their behavior. Mm -hmm. And that's not at odds with doing whatever we need to do to put ourselves first. Um, So I, I think that for me, it's a big, big rabbit hole, but what is love? How do we love people who are difficult to love? Um, without doing damage to ourselves, I think Mm -hmm. is very, very important. Um, But for us empaths, and I I really identify strongly as an empath, something about our makeup and the makeup of, of, of people who are struggling with this, it really does have a way of kind of getting into you. Um, I, one of the blessings of working with people who have personality disorders and who struggle with boundaries is that it has revealed to me um, where I struggle over and over and over again. So in some ways they've been my greatest teachers. Where do I struggle with my own boundaries and where do I need to improve and get a little bit stronger? 
And I think it's also been helpful to not beat myself up about that, um, to not say, oh my gosh, my boundaries, look at, look at what I did. I allowed this, this you know, event to happen and for myself to get really affected or get pulled out of myself. But to really see it as learning and an opportunity and a call to myself to say, how can I be better about caring for myself and protecting myself? So I hope people have compassion with themselves too as they deal with, with people who are struggling with this in their lives. Um, I, I agree. It comes down to self-love because, mm-hmm. you know, so many of the symptoms of borderline personality disorder, I feel that an empath could believe, oh, well, love would fix that. You yeah. know, like someone with borderline feels that they have that fear of abandonment. Mm-hmm. They have, you know, unstable relationships. They have impulsivity. They might have suicidal thoughts, uh, a lot of emotional instability, fear, uh, feeling empty, lots of intense anger. They have all these things going on. And, and an empath feels like, oh, well, I can just love all that away. Yeah. But I think you can, like you said, that sacrifice, you can lose yourself in that feeling that, oh, I can fix this by you know, loving them. And so that's why I think it goes back to self-love because when you love yourself, truly, you naturally set boundaries. Yeah. And I think for all of our listeners looking back at their childhood and what they were taught about love, not only from their parents, but from their religion of origin as well. Right. You know, I mean, like I think about myself growing up as a Catholic and Mm -hmm. I think about look, looking at Jesus on that cross every Sunday and thinking, oh, that's love. You, you sacrifice yourself until you die on a cross. Yeah. Yeah. I also, you know, like, yeah, yeah. I grew up Catholic um, and I identify as Catholic and that's so there. It's, it's all, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of unlearning that I think we all have to do in adulthood and questioning things just like, you know, I went through this whole process of questioning and trying to unlearn all that I had learned about people with personality disorders. You know, some of what we're taught, it just, it comes from a distorted place. And we get to do that work in adulthood. We get to do that work of questioning and of choosing what we want to believe and how we want to experience the world. Do you guys, you guys, you have to hear this story because this is a weird little lesson about love. One night when I was, I was like nine or 10 and we were at the dinner table and I don't know what was going through my head, but I was wondering about love. And I asked my parents and well, my sister, we're all at the table. And I said, do you guys believe in unconditional love? Mm -hmm. And my mom said, oh no, that's, that's a made up hippie thing. No. And my dad, I looked to my dad and he goes, oh yeah, no, there's no such thing as unconditional love. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Really? So, like, there is something I could do where you wouldn't love me? And my dad goes, well, look at the Bible, Samantha. Even God loves you on condition. Mm, Wow. And that always stayed with me because he said, look, he said, just read your Bible. If you don't do this, you're not loved by God. If you don't do that, you're not loved by God. If you don't think this way, if you don't keep the Sabbath holy, you know, there's all these rules. He said, even God loves us conditionally. Yeah. And it's, I think we need to not mistake or how I see unconditional love. It's not, you know, that idea of turning the other cheek and just giving, giving, giving. It's, you can love somebody, but your love for them can change its shape and form as it needs to, to keep you safe. If you're, 
you know, mm-hmm. um, my sibling and you are erupting at me in anger and it's, it's giving me, you know, like a trauma response and I just don't feel safe around you. I get to love you from a distance over here, you know, uh, because I think it, it can be so hard. A lot of people really advocate for the idea of no contact. Um, if people have become, you know, if their behavior is affecting someone in such a way that they really need to not expose themselves to that situation. And I think that that's a good option for some people Mm -hmm. in certain situations, certainly if somebody is being abusive, but you get to love that person. And that, that was a, a lesson I learned so early on in my career. My first internship was working with kids who'd been sexually abused and some of them had been abused by parents or by really trusted loved ones and giving kids the permission to really hate and be angry at but still love that person I really think just opened some eyes and opened a lot of space for healing you don't have to lose that connection with a person but you also don't have to let them all the way in so the loving response doesn't have to be as black and white as their behavior. No. And isn't it funny how our behavior sometimes in response to people takes on that same black and white thing? Like, I'm not going to have any contact with you or I'm, you know, right. it just follows suit and we get dragged along for this kind of crazy emotional roller coaster. But we're also human beings that have needs. We have needs for contact and for love um, of a parent, of a sibling, um, of whoever it is in our lives. And we get to make choices about how we experience that love, whether it's just journaling with them, you know, and not actually sharing it with them. We get to keep these connections alive for ourselves and for our own benefit because there's, there's good um, and very positive and loving and warm aspects that we miss out on too when we when we don't have contact. I think another important part of this, um, again from, from personal experience and from people that I've spoken with, is that when we give ourselves permission for self-love and self-acceptance, it's a major tool in breaking that cycle and that familiarity of how we're treated. So if we've been brought up in our family of origin or in different relationships where that's been the the uh, the reciprocity uh, between, you know, uh, emotional reciprocity. It can cause a pattern with with love relationships, with parenting styles, with other things. So, truly, that whole part that you're talking about with with the self love is such a huge, huge component of being able to give ourselves that permission to love someone from a distance or love someone from our perspective and not mm-hmm. the way we've been brought up. Because mm-hmm. if not, it, if from, from what I've seen and experienced it, it can be a hell of a roller coaster ride. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to your point too, we grow up with this model of, of relationship that gets formed and, and might be really distorted, might be really unhealthy. And we find ourselves in those same relationships and those same dynamics over and over and over again in life, it might repeat itself. And I think of it, and I try to frame that with my clients and even with myself as in the positive. That's that's you trying to figure it out and that's you trying to learn and that's you trying to make sense of an experience that was really traumatic by putting yourself back in the situation and trying to to piece it together, like this in vivo learning experience. 
so I, I, I really want people to kind of understand that that might be part of the reason that they're drawn to these situations over and over again. It's, it's a well-intended part of you that's trying to learn something and trying to learn how to protect yourself. And you also have more options um, and, and you deserve to have support um, in learning those, those different tools that you can use in these relationships. Well, this is a little bit random, but what popped into my head a few minutes ago when you were speaking with Samantha is how many people self-medicate with substances or alcohol when they have this disorder and then the impact on an empathic child or an empathic family member who is not only dealing with the personality issues, but also let's throw some substances at it, trying to find some stability. Is there a big correlation there? Huge, huge. There is a huge correlation between, um, you know, substance use, alcohol misuse, eating disorder behavior, um, and, and all these different tools. And you hit the nail on the head. These are the best that people have learned. Um, these are the best tools that they have learned in being able to manage really um, extreme emotions and helping to regulate themselves. So um, sometimes what I see in my practice, very rarely does somebody come into my practice or give me a phone call and say, um, I would like to come in to, for treatment for borderline personality disorder. <laughs> it's, it's happened. Um, and usually those are folks who've been in treatment before and who, you know, maybe I'm, I'm at a later point in their journey of healing. But people will come to me and say, I've been chronically depressed or they're struggling with alcohol or they're struggling with something else. And we work on that to resolve that. And then some of these underlying patterns might make themselves way more apparent. And we find that this experience might have been underneath it and driving it all along. And the blessing there is we get to from there learn new tools for coping with them. Um, so it, it's it's kind of like all healing is the peeling away of of onion layers, but mm -hmm. I think you know the alcohol misuse and eating disorder behaviors they can sometimes mask and be so much more obvious and clear to the outside observer and even to the person than some of the stuff that's going on underneath. And do you see that sometimes the person who's impacted by the behavior? will turn to the substances as to kind of numb it out a little bit. Oh, so somebody who's in a relationship with somebody. Right. Yeah. So I think I'm, I'm looking at it from both sides of the fence at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I have definitely seen that as well. You know, and then of course it gets tricky too, because we have to think about maybe these folks came from the same family of origin and maybe they both might turn to alcohol because mm -hmm. there was something that, that happened in their family that maybe predisposed them to that or made that more likely to happen. But absolutely. And I, it's, it can be so many things. There's so many ways that we numb out, throwing ourselves into work, um, over-exercising, um, taking on, you know, an eating disorder behavior or, uh, you know, substance abuse, just like you were mentioning. But I, I do see that. And frequently, again, what will happen on the other side of the fence is once you begin to work on that, the feelings that were driving that all along begin to show themselves because the person is then sitting with those difficult feelings that they have been using the alcohol to cope with. Right. But, but the onion is a beautiful analogy because there's, it, it, it seems like there's always another layer of healing. 
Yeah, which is why healing can be exhausting work. <laughs> you know, I don't think I would survive in this field, um, which I, I love and I adore the work that I do. But I also had to make peace with the fact that like, I was going to really have to throw myself into my own healing <laughs> and commit myself to that. And I really had to give myself permission to do that. And sometimes you're just like, oh God, you know, how long is this going to go on for? And the answer is your whole life, if you're lucky, you mm -hmm. know, <laughs> you're just going to keep coming into more and more wholeness, but it's so hard. You know, healing isn't this like Zen moment on top of a mountain with a beam of light, you know, shining on you. It's, it's so challenging. Well, and the blunt version is, you know, when you think you've done your work and then you wake up and you say, oh, son of a bitch, there's further to go. Yeah. So, <laughs> but it, it yeah. is, it's a journey. It's not, there's no end to it. And that's the enlightenment piece or the self-acceptance or whatever we want to call it. So, yeah. It's a damn big onion. <laughs> oh yeah, a never-ending onion. <laughs> I just want to say one thing that's helped me a lot in my healing journey is clarity and honesty. Yeah. Luckily, and maybe because I'm a child of an alcoholic, I don't know. I I haven't chosen those ways to numb out. But what I do to numb out is I call it my turtle time. And when when I as an empath, when I get overwhelmed. I just disconnect from everyone. So yes. you just won't hear from me for like a week. And, you know, friends would get really upset by that and understandably so. Mm -hmm. But now what I do is I'll tell my friends like, Hey, it's been a really stressful week. I'm going to take a time out from the world and just kind of disconnect FYI. Yeah. That has helped so much just to kind of tell people like I'm going through this difficult time right now. Here's how I'm responding to it. Please don't take it personally. Rather than in the past, what I've done is pretend, oh, I'm just busy. That's why I'm not calling you. Mm -hmm. Or I have forced myself to not do the self-protection timeout that I need and just go back out into the world. And so I think part of healing is just loving yourself and recognizing where you are on that journey and sharing it with others. Yeah. Giving yourself permission to do that, knowing that it's okay, um, that you deserve to take timeouts from people and you deserve to have, you know, your friends and the people who care about you to have some understanding about that. I know that, you know, for my own healing and the things that I do to keep myself whole, um, it was really hard for me to justify spending money. Um, I would kind of look at, oh my gosh, what percentage of, you know, of my budget is going towards my own therapy, is going towards acupuncture appointments, is going towards the gym. And I know that I really had to give myself permission to say, it's worth it. It's an investment in my health and making my experience of being in the world a more sane and, and enjoyable experience. You know, my sister's friend is a psychotherapist up in Asheville. She's really, really wonderful. And she always relates it to a college degree. And she says, you know, people spend thousands of dollars to learn how to be an accountant, an engineer, what have you. And she said, but they balk at spending any money on their degree in themselves. Yeah, I love that. And, a degree in yourself. Yeah. Uh-huh. And that's helped me a lot. Um, the other thing I wanted to say, when you're dealing with a borderline personality disorder person in a family, I think it's really important for all the members of that family to love and support each other as well. Yes. That's something 
my sisters and I have really struggled with and have learned to deal with, you know, one of us might choose no contact while mm-hmm. the other one is just going to jump in, push up her sleeves and, and fix this. Yes. And the other one might be in and out and figuring it. And what we've all had to learn to do is just not judge how anyone else's response to yes. the angry person. One of the um, signs of, of maybe somebody struggling with borderline uh, that, you know, you're trained early on to look for is splitting. And one of the ways that splitting can manifest is that sometimes people, because people um, who are struggling with borderline tend to see people as black or white um, and tend to see people as all good or all bad, um, that manifests in this way where they might unintentionally or unconsciously pit people in situations against one another. So how that might manifest in like a a treatment, let's say like a psychiatric hospital, is that maybe like two staff workers are all of a sudden really at odds with one another with regards to this case. Um, So it's always a sign and a symptom, and I see it happen in families too, that like alliances form and conflicts form. And I think that's such a wise observation that you've made that, that people need to realize you guys are all in this together. Um, when somebody's struggling in a family, it's a family problem and everybody's dealing with that um, in their own way. And I love that you pointed out having patience with where people are in their journey because people are going to be at various different points at various points of time and not everybody's going to be on the same page, but it's a shared problem and everybody is going to do a lot better when um, you work on it together. And just to kind of touch back on like, you know, the hopefulness of research and everything. Some of the research is showing that the more involved family members can be in a person's treatment, the more likely um, they are to recover and the better the outcomes. So families play a really, really important role in this too. I agree. You know, it's funny because, um, I don't think my mom unconsciously pitted us against each other. <laughs> she was yeah. saying, your older sister is my favorite because, and she lists all the reasons why she favors her. So yeah. my other sister and I, you know, bonded because of that. When we got into our 20s, we had some fights with my older sister, you know, like, well, you're the superstar, you're the special one. And one night she said, she cried and she said, do you know, how awful that was for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that was so empowering. And so I just, if anyone is going through that in your own family, I think it's really important to have a sit down with the other family members and to identify what is my role in the family? Well, what was my role in the family and how did that impact me? And how did that impact you? That's why I'm such an advocate of therapy because if people could just have a safe place. I mean, my sister and I, we, we did therapy together in our 20s for years. We would go every Friday morning to this lovely gentleman downtown, and we would just talk about our role in our family of origin, and it was, it was really bonding, and it was very helpful. Yeah. Therapy is, I mean, <laughs> I, it would be kind of silly if I didn't feel this way, but I do, I put my, I put my money where my mouth is. I do my own therapy, and I'm you know, I'm, I'm committed to my own process too, because I, I believe in it and I think it works. I think lots of other things work too. I don't think it's the end all be all. I know that people find healing, um, in other spaces too, but I think it's a really great option for, for just about anyone. 
Well, why do you think that some research is showing BPDs recover on their own? Now, if, if you asked my mom, she would say, well, it's because you all were raised with Phil Donahue and Oprah and Dr. Phil. <sighs> okay. <laughs> She'll say, us moms growing up, you know, raising our kids in the 70s, we didn't have those benefits. You know, you guys, yeah. you guys are exposed to all of this, and so it's helpful. Do you actually think that's a part of it, or is it <laughs> people getting too tired to be mad? I I think there's there's some of that, and like if if we look at you know what what some of the theories are, and I tend to agree with, is that if you think about like the natural life course. And you think about somebody who is in their teenage years and their 20s, um, the brain, especially the parts of the brain that are able to reconcile opposites and hold different sets of information that might conflict with one another at the same time, are still developing. Different parts of the brain that are related to impulse control and to decision making are still developing. So somebody who who is struggling with this issue their brain is continuing to develop and they might become less impulsive as a part of like the natural um growth process so i I think it has something to do with that i think it it also has something to do with i think that people who are struggling with this issue have been struggling with it for so long that they over time naturally learn and they naturally learn little ways that they can manage and and larger ways that that they can manage these symptoms in their lives. Um, So there's there's always a continual learning process going on. If you have been struggling with this for decades, you've likely faced a lot of repercussions um, for some of your behaviors. You may have lost jobs, you may have lost relationships. And the more and more that that happens, people begin to feel or have more opportunities to make the connection between, well, when I do this, this happens. And this really doesn't get me closer to where I want to be. So I tend to think it has something to do with that. Although I think, you know, I don't know how much talk shows have to do with it, but maybe, you know, we have access to the internet and we have access to like resources that could potentially help people too. And I think especially um, borderline, it's, it's so much more a part of the conversation um, than it ever has been before. I think it's not something that people would have talked about or had much, like your average person would have had much consciousness about, you know, 20 years ago or whatever it is. So you know, these, these articles are getting out there. They're being shared on Facebook. People post openly about their own experiences, you know, on social media. So there's a lot of different ways that learning is happening too. What, um, what would be some skills or some tools for empaths? And yes, I I think therapy is a beautiful, beautiful example of self-care and healing but for some of the people who may not have a supportive family or may not have um, access to, to resources, what would be some personal things for highly sensitive people to be able to do mm-hmm. if they're in that situation with someone? I think um, in general, and I'll get into like some more specific ways to do that, helping yourself to slow down 
and to reconnect with all the different, you know, the wisest parts of yourselves um, that can give you guidance and that can help reorient yourself and get you firmly situated within yourself to make the best decisions for yourself about how to, how to proceed in a relationship or a moment. Um, when we're in the midst of like a crisis or something's going on, we tend to get really hyper aroused and we're in our emotional mind, we're in our emotions and we lose access to that other part of ourselves that has accumulated all this wisdom over the years, has the ability to be, um, you know, has the ability to reason through a situation. So slowing down and when we notice ourselves in that very emotional place, recognizing you know, I might not be in the best position right now to move forward. So this is a signal to myself that I need to slow things down, um, not respond to the situation until I've had the benefit of really connecting with myself, all of myself, um, so that you can balance your emotional response and also have access to like to reason. I think that's a challenging thing to do because these situations really get inside of us. Mm -hmm. But um, different techniques that I've used with myself and that I find to be really helpful, I try to, I, I'm a hugely visual person. I will put myself like on a desert island. Um, I will um, envision myself like in that situation and then see myself just briefly walking away from it, taking myself to like a quiet place where I can be with myself and asking myself the questions that I need to about how to proceed. I think it can be helpful to think about the situation, but replace that person with a person that you have a really boundary, healthy relationship and ask yourself if this was, you know, my really good friend, Karen, that I have great boundaries with, and I usually don't have any problem um, navigating. If this same situation were happening with Karen, what would I do? And that could give you some guidance about how to proceed and how to keep yourself healthy and boundaried in that situation too. And those are also really, really good tools for uh, children or teens who may be struggling mm -hmm. is to, to help empower them at a younger age to, to find a way to cope with people in their life that may be difficult or unpredictable. Yes. And ask yourself the question, um, whose feelings are these? And I think that's an important question for all empaths. You know, just walking down the street, I, I ask myself that question. But if I find myself all of a sudden feeling insecure or guilty or fearful, you know, whose feelings do these, who's feeling, who did these feelings belong to? Um, and this is something that I've, I don't know how I stumbled upon this, but I will envision um, boundaries around myself. And if I sense that a person is projecting a feeling onto me, and I can kind of see it in my mind's eye, this is the, you know, the empath in me coming out within a therapy session, but I can see and like really sense when a person is trying to upset me or trying to make me feel a certain way. And I reinforce those boundaries around me and I say, like just to myself, these feelings do not belong to me. And if I can do that, I've found that the feelings return back to the person and they experience them like right before my eyes. I've, I've seen it happen. Like if a person is trying to upset me and I kind of 
maintain that position of not taking it on, that the feelings have no place to go but to return back to the person where they belong and where they can actually be healed. So these different techniques, as well as keeping yourself in the healthiest place that you can. I know that for me, physical health is really important, making sure that I'm as rested and as in my body as I can be also helps protect me. Thank you. Those are excellent helpful. I think knowledge is power too. Mm -hmm. Reading books about borderline personality disorder has helped me understand this more and has helped me learn to set healthier boundaries. You recommended a podcast to me called In Conversation Talks on BPD and Recovery. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you, if anyone listening to this is dealing with someone uh, or you think you might have BPD, I think you should check that out. Are there any books that that you recommend as well that people check out? Yeah, I think that, um, I wrote them down because I, I kind of was asking myself and anticipating that question. Um, I love I Hate You Don't Leave Me um, is a really good book to give. It's mm-hmm. called I Hate You Don't Leave Me, Understanding Borderline Personality Disorder. Borderline Personality Disorder Demystified is, a, is another great book. Um, I love mindfulness for borderline personality disorder. Um, the first half of the book goes into research and like does a job of um, explaining more about BPD. And then the second half of the book gives mindfulness exercises that folks struggling with BPD or even just folks who are struggling with, you know, emotional sensitivity or difficulty managing their emotions can practice and build into their lives um, as skills. And um, I I think there's also, I also encourage people to seek out stories of people who have recovered and of people who have a positive message because you would ask me, do I ever tell people if I think they have borderline personality disorder? And something that I kind of, you know, get really anxious about when I want to share that information with somebody Um, that I think that might be something that they're struggling with is I fear them going home and Googling it (laughs) because you can find so many negative, really, there's just so many message boards and people venting and people with messages of like hopelessness out there that I think if you can seek out people who have been through this um, and who are now helping other people, that can be really helpful. And three of those people that I can recommend. One of them is Marsha Linehan, who actually, she's a psychologist who herself struggled with BPD and developed a protocol called Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, which is now widely used to treat BPD. She developed this whole protocol based on her own experience of how she was able to get through this. And she's a widely respected, well-regarded psychologist. Um, so you can read more about her. There's also a book called Uh, what is it called? It's called uh, The Buddha and the Borderline. So it's a woman's story about using mindfulness and Buddhism to help her through um, her struggle with BPD. And there's a woman named Debbie Corso who has a blog that's emotionallysensitive.com. And she's very candid in like YouTube videos and in her postings about some of what she's been through, how she's been hospitalized, how She used to find herself um, mistreating people she was in relationships with and how she used um, dialectical behavioral therapy or DBT to learn skills to help her gain more control over her life. 
Wow. Okay. I wrote those down. So I will post those <laughs> on our Facebook page. Okay. But the first thing that hits me when you mentioned, when you mentioned like Dr. Lionahan or, or Debbie Corso is how brave. Yes. Because they really are the, some of the first. They're some of the, they're putting themselves out there in a moment where it's, it's crazy to me now that I think about it objectively, but in the mental health profession, we would never roll our eyes and say, oh, this person has bipolar disorder, <laughs> you know, like stay with mm-hmm. them. Because immediately we would recognize that within my profession is like, that's really discriminatory. Why do we, you shouldn't say that about people with bipolar. Um, but we readily do that. And I've heard that time and time again about personality disorders and about BPD in particular. So how brave that these people put themselves out there um, and just what a blessing that they took their struggles and that they were able to make these huge contributions. You know what well, I absolutely, I just, before I forget real quick, I, I absolutely love that you're giving people the skills and this whole topic is allowing people to step away from that being the main identifier of who they are on the planet. Yeah. And what I got a flash of was some students that I had worked with in the past who had some very, very serious behavioral and emotional issues and were highly medicated for for different disorders. But if you ask them, these were young teens or mid-teen who had a laundry list of what their diagnosis was, what their symptoms were, what their medications were, and no disrespect to any of them, but it almost became an excuse of why they couldn't further their lives or they couldn't be held responsible or they couldn't be. So by switching this into people not making that their primary identity, What a beautiful, beautiful gift. Yeah. And it's, it becomes, it's a, it's got two sides to the coin. I've had the experience of seeing folks in treatment who've been struggling and struggling on and off medication with depression, anxiety, broken relationships for years and years and years. And I sit down with them and I describe to them about borderline and it's like their eyes lit up and they're, they've said, that's it. You know, that is this unnamed thing that I have been struggling with and nobody has ever gotten before and nobody's ever understood. And now that I know what it is, I know that I can move forward and I know a little bit more about what I need to do to really begin to heal. And then on the other side of the coin, exactly what you're saying. Um, If we diagnose somebody with BPD and they receive the message, this is a lifelong diagnosis, you know, you're going to struggle in your relationships compared to other people. You have this, this, and this flaw. People can take that on. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think we need to, to, if you are a person who's received this diagnosis or any diagnosis for that matter, seek out the voices that are uplifting and that are approaching that from a positive perspective. This is now a roadmap that you can use. It's a way that you can connect to community and other people who have similar struggles and be skeptical and question any time that you hear that a diagnosis is going to mean that X, Y, and Z is for sure and for certain going to happen in your life and that you're limited because that's more often than not, not true. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Can you give some tips to listeners who have never been to a therapist? Sure. How do you... How do you choose a good therapist? What is psychotherapy versus traditional therapy? What should people look for? 
therapy, so um, psychotherapy to me is how I think of it is I think of it as a little bit of like a time out from the world where you can go and be and have some introspection and really look at what's going on um, and some of your patterns, some of your beliefs that might even be hidden to you and you might not even realize are necessarily like ruling and guiding some of the way that you are in the world. Um, it's a place where you can go get that time out and then make some new choices, learn where things can potentially change. So it's not, I think sometimes, you know, when people find out that I'm a therapist or they think about psychotherapy, there's a thought that like, I'm, I have this like superpower, or this skill that I can just figure people out and know exactly what's going on with them. I don't think it's that as invasive as that at all. Um, so I want to like relieve people of that. It's a collaborative space where you can go and get an outside consciousness that you can hopefully like trust that can point out to you where, where changes can happen in your life. What if someone goes to a therapist, like how does it work for a newbie? Like let's say you go to a therapist and you're sitting down and you're like, Ooh, I don't feel, I don't feel a connection here. I don't feel right about this. Yeah. How do you, how do you go about, you know, saying, yes, I feel comfortable with you. I want to stick with you or no, this isn't working. Do you just go on friend recommendations? Is there like a website, like a 100 best? <laughs> <laughs> the 100 best of all time therapists. <laughs> and then, if, you know, the list of the hundred never go to these people. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think, you know, friend recommendations can be really helpful um, because, you know, that's a person that can kind of say, you know, in my judgment, and I, I really trust this person. I know them to be trustworthy. One thing I would caution against about um, a friend recommendation or a family recommendation is I think it's really important to have your own space. So it can get a little like complicated and a little tricky if you have, you know, except for there might be exceptions to this rule. But if you have like a friend group that are all going to the same therapist, you know, are you going to feel as comfortable talking about Cheryl or whoever, if you know that Cheryl is also seeing the same therapist, <laughs> you deserve to have your own space. Um, but also I recognize I'm in New York City where there's probably a one-to-one -one ratio of therapists to people here. So everybody could have their own therapist. But, you know, the reality in smaller communities is just not that. You might have to, it might be a reality that the therapist in your area is also seeing people that you have social relationships with. But I, I say trust your gut. If you meet with people um, and it doesn't feel like quite a good fit, you have the right to kind of, maybe quote unquote shop around a little bit. I offer everybody a free 20 minute consultation um, before we make a decision to work together. And you might be able to ask for something like that. Could we have a conversation on the phone for 15 minutes or in person so that I can get a sense of your style before I commit to working with you? It's also an opportunity for me to see if I'm gonna be able to be of help to that person um, to find out if we're- That was my next question. Do you ever say to potential clients, I don't think we're going to be a good fit? How does that work? It, you know what? It does happen. It does happen. And sometimes I meet with people and it's kind of like, I think where you are in your life, you might actually need more than I have to offer. 
um, you might be a person that really benefits from a more intensive treatment than I typically offer. Or, um, especially because I'm here in New York, I have postgraduate training in eating disorder treatment, for example. And there are certain areas that I feel really competent and really sure of myself that I know I can offer people good treatment. If you're looking for help with infidelity or if you're looking for you know, a couples counselor, there are some really fantastic people here and I can refer you to them. And mm -hmm. likewise, if somebody comes to them that they, they can refer them to me if they feel like I might be a better fit. So I do sometimes, I hope people never take it <laughs> personally. I try to frame it as I really care about people getting good quality treatment. So here are some names or resources of folks that I know that really could help you. Right. I know. I think that, I think that's important because it's, it's a relationship that you're starting when you mm -hmm. start to engage with the therapist and you want to make sure it's a relationship that feels connected and beneficial on both sides. Yeah, and that can change too. You know, just speaking to go into my personal life for a minute, I had worked with a therapist for about three and a half or four years. So it was a long relationship. And I began to reach this point when we, we talked about it together in therapy where it didn't feel like such a good fit anymore. I think that she was instrumental to, and absolutely who helped me the most with like a certain season of my life. But you know, you as a human being, you're always changing and maybe you're struggling with like another issue or you're just in need of something else. I as a therapist don't take that personally. You know, sometimes we're meant to be in each other's lives for just a brief period of time. And that's what I had to offer to somebody. Now, living in New York City, I want you to talk about some cool events you have coming up. But before you do that, um, Denise was asking you before we started this interview, what is it like for an empath living in New York City? Oh, I thought goodness. that was such a good question. <laughs> it's, um, it's something I struggle with. I think if I, if I weren't generations of New York, um, I grew up in Queens and my whole family is here. I don't know that it's, it's such like a, a good match for somebody like me. I think it requires more downtime of, of us empaths. And I think it requires even more attention to self and to your own needs and just like that day-to-day -day routine maintenance because it's like sensory overload here and people are like literally so close to one another that boundaries even get confused. So it's something that I do struggle with and it's something that I think it kind of becomes all the more important living here in New York City to have a space and you know space is just so expensive and, and, and tiny but if you can carve out even if it's just like a part of a room or your bedroom a small little haven for yourself that you can go back to to get a little bit of like respite and to get a break from the world I think that that's especially important for us who are here and you know I had a weird situation where my dad basically lived in the city for 10 years and he would just come home on Saturdays and Sundays mm -hmm. and he's very empathic. And, and he said, when you live in New York city, you basically live in a neighborhood of about four blocks and <laughs> yeah. everything you need is in those four blocks. And he said, as long as you can think of those, those four blocks as your, your neighborhood, mm -hmm. it feels like a community and like a home. And he said, if you don't yeah. do that, you can feel lost really fast. That is very true. And I think that's a, that's a good tip. I think, um, <clears throat> so I live in Brooklyn and 
it is true. You never have to go more than like two or three blocks and there's so many restaurants and there's so many people. And you, if you can make an effort to get to know the people in your building or the people who run the businesses around you, um, that's really helpful. I think the part of living in New York that I struggle with the most is not necessarily that, but that commute into Manhattan on a crowded, you know, cause my office is in Manhattan yeah. where you can't help but be exposed to all these lights and sounds and people and, you know, events that are going on. So I think, you know, grounding yourself before I go out in the morning, before I go out onto the subway and before I go out into, into Manhattan is also so important. I'm sorry, Denise, you were going to ask something and I talked right over you before. Oh no, you covered it. It's beautiful. <laughs> Thank okay. you. <laughs> it was beautiful. Yeah, I think taking taking opportunity wherever you live to take advantage of where you live, you know, wherever <laughs> that might be. But I mean, the city, in my opinion, New York is the best city in the world. That's my humble yeah. opinion. And, <laughs> and they have the best parks, and you can yeah. just get lost. Yeah, and the, the art and the theater. You know, nothing's without oh, yeah. it it's blessings and it's like drawbacks. So I think you're totally right. If, if you find yourself kind of in like a city rut and feeling really, uh, you know, kind of like burnt out, reorienting yourself to that. I also think take advantage of the parks and take advantage of like the great hiking and nature that if you hop on a train, you could get to, <laughs> um, and take a respite so you can come back and you can appreciate it even more. Yeah, that's so true. I, I lived in the city one summer with my boyfriend after college and we were so poor, you know, we were newly graduated and, and I remember he lived in Greenwich Village and I remember just going anywhere cost money, you know, mm-hmm. and one day we woke up on a Saturday, we had like $3 between us and we had this whole day off and so we just walked from one end of the city to the other. I think it took us like eight hours, but yeah. it was so fun just to do that and yeah. explore, but the money of living in that city always stays with me. Yeah, it's it's amazing the ways that you find to work around that. Um, my husband, I, I he introduced me to this. He's like, let's just go on the Staten Island ferry. Let's <laughs> let's go on it. Let's get to Staten Island and let's come right back. It's a boat ride and it's free. <laughs> you know, you yeah. find, you find these little ways to to make it work, and you find like the loopholes. <laughs> That's so cool. Now, tell us, you've got some really cool events coming up. Can you tell people what you have coming up in New York in November and over the holidays? Sure. So I have two events coming up. Well, one's like a a therapy group, really, and the other is a professional development opportunity. So on November 3rd, and you'll be able to find more information about this for signing up on my website, there is going to be a, a workshop that I'm leading called Theater for Therapists. And that's me drawing on my theater background um, to teach skills to therapists about um, how to make use of themselves in the therapy relationship. And the cool thing about that is we all as therapists have to do a certain number of hours of continuing education per year. If you're a licensed creative arts therapist, a licensed clinical social worker, or a counselor, New York State has approved this class to count towards those continuing education credits. So you get to do theater exercises and talk about them and get credit for it, which is fun. That's so cool. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I taught it last year and people really liked it. 
Um, and another group that I'm offering again um, that I've run before is a six week group for people to take an opportunity to look at their relationships to food and their bodies. And it's in November and December. We'll meet um, once a week for an hour and a half over six weeks to help give some extra support, especially around the holidays when so many people are struggling with being around big meals and there's triggers about being around family and, you know, potentially stressful situations. And that group is for women and anybody who identifies as a woman. Um, and you can also find information about that on the website as well. We will post um, links to your website on our Facebook page and in the show notes when we post this. And like I said, I busily wrote down all the book titles and blogs and stuff that you mentioned. So I will okay. create a post on that as well. Cities, do you have any final questions for Amy? No, I just want to say thank you so very much for, for sharing all of your yeah. wealth of knowledge and experience with the audience. Thank you so much. Thank you both so much for all that you do. I love the show and I look forward to continuing to listen to it. I'm really grateful. Thank you. We are really grateful to you. And, and I'm just grateful to know that that I, I call it an ugly diagnosis. It sounds so heavy. You have borderline personality disorder. Yeah. And I just love that your research and, and new findings everywhere are showing that there really is hope and that this isn't a, a terminal diagnosis. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad that people are, I hope that, you know, it, it would be so wonderful to me if people heard this, you know, podcast and, and it could help people to understand that. So I'm glad that we had this opportunity to put that message out there in the world. Me too. And I hope everyone checks out your website. And, and if you're in the New York area, check out um, especially her event coming up over the holidays. I think we all could use that. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone listening. Don't forget to always show up, do great work and share your light. We hope you have a great week, everyone. We will be back next week with a new show and some spooky stuff coming up for you in October. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>